thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, in the book of Acts, we are now heading towards the end. We're coming towards the end. These chapters move quite quickly. Um, They are historical narratives, so it's not like slowly wading through doctrinal verses, but a lot of history, a lot of uh, passages that we can move quite quickly through. Um, And we've, in our studies, we've looked at the journeys of Paul. Uh, particularly from from chapter 13 on. The three missionary journeys, uh, the first, you can see the first little loop there, the first missionary journey in Asia Minor, the second missionary journey taking them over to Europe, the third missionary journey tracing over that same area and ending in Jerusalem where we we studied uh, Paul's arrest and uh, and now he, he finds himself in Caesarea. And uh, there's a series of um, defenses that Paul has to, has to make. So since the last chapter, there's been a change in the Roman governor. The last governor we saw was Paul before Felix. And when this chapter opens, we now see that Paul is going to be dealing with Festus. And um, Festus was appointed, of course, by Caesar. He's a direct representation of him. Um, and and uh, Felix... Um, messed up a few things, and he was removed and replaced. So when we come into chapter 5, we have a new governor um, who finds when he comes to Caesarea, which became the, uh, where the governor would operate from and live in Caesarea, he finds that he's also inherited this prisoner, a notable prisoner by the name of Paul, who seems to have been kicking up a lot of fuss and a lot of trouble. So if we break down this chapter, we can see it starts with Festus and the Jews in Jerusalem. As soon as Festus uh, comes to Caesarea, just a few days later, he goes down to Jerusalem to make connections to, to uh, let himself be seen and known as the new governor. Um, and then Festus and Paul uh, meet in Caesarea. Paul appears before Festus and his accusers, and Paul makes the famous appeal to Caesar um, uh, which, which, is, which of course happens. And then we see another uh, couple of interesting characters on the scene, and that's Agrippa, and uh, he visits Festus, and Agrippa has his sister, um, I've got my name, not Bernice, yeah, Bernice, yeah, Bernice, uh, with him. It's kind of his sister, but there's an incest, thank you, incestuous relationship that's believed to have been happening. But they are a couple, but they're brother and sister. And they visit, come onto the scene. And of course, Agrippa is the Herodian king in the line of the Herods. Um, And then Paul eventually will be brought before the king in those last verses. And it sets the stage for chapter 26, where it's Paul's longest defense before King Agrippa. So that's where we are tonight. So if we think about some of those defenses... Paul was before the Jewish mob in Jerusalem in chapter 22, before the Sanhedrin in chapter 23, before Felix in 24. Now he's before Festus in chapter 25, and uh, Agrippa is the next chapter, which is the longest of Paul's addresses. And each time Paul is before his accusers, um, he's always really found innocent. They find it very difficult to really pin anything on him. He hasn't broken any civil Roman laws. And even the Jews with their religious laws, they they really struggle 
to, uh, to, to bring him to, to any, any real guilt, to have a case against him. No witnesses, no evidence. Their case is very weak. Um, and uh, so as we come to verse 1 of chapter 25, now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And you'll notice that as a Bible student. You'll notice that it's always going up to Jerusalem. When we look at a map, we think of north being up and south being down. But if we looked at a map here, you can see Jerusalem is south of Caesarea. And the reason they say up to Jerusalem is because of the elevation. Jerusalem is high, and that's why they had the Psalms of Ascent that they would sing as they go up to Jerusalem. So they'd always go down from Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem. So when Festus had come to the province after three days, he went from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And again, this was he's the new governor, new, the new governor in town. He wants to make himself known. Uh, verse 2, we see, Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews, by the way, the high priest has also changed in this time, and these chief men would be the Sanhedrin that Paul already was bef- stood before, informed him against Paul, and they pe- petitioned him and asked a favor of him. So, think of it. Two years have gone by. The beloved apostle Paul is in Caesarea. He's in some dungeon or holding place somewhere in the, in the palace grounds there. Two years have gone by. The high priest has changed, the governor has changed, the new governor goes to Jerusalem, but still this is lingering on the mind of these Jews. It's the first thing they bring up to the new governor, it's Paul. And what was in their heart was that they wanted him, not, not, not justice to be done, they wanted him to be killed, and whatever that, that, that would take. So in fact, in the next chapter, when he is relaying this to Agrippa, he says in 26.24, he says, All the Jews in Jerusalem dealt with me about this man, saying he should die. It doesn't actually say that in 25, but 26, as he's looking back, he says, You know what, when I went to Jerusalem, they, they were all telling me that Paul should die, he should be killed. That was what they, they wanted to see happen. So in verse 3, they ask a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem. And notice that Luke highlights their real intentions, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. So again, this hatred towards Paul and all that he stood for, representing the way or Christianity or the, 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 the crucified and apparently risen uh, Messiah, Jesus. But we see that he did not consent to them. Verse 4 says, But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going to be there shortly. So he says, Therefore, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. So um, he basically says, No, if you want him to be accused, want him to be judged, you can come to Caesarea. That's where I'm going to be dealing. That's where the... uh, The judgment seat is, so I'll see you there. If you're really interested, uh, come on down. So in chapter 25, in the next verse, in verse 6, And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea. 
And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. Now, again, Caesarea is an incredible place. Uh, When you visit Israel, it definitely needs to be on your list of places to visit. Of course, there are several significant things that happen there. We know that Philip uh, ends up ends up there with his daughters and has a ministry there for 20 plus years. We know that Cornelius, the first Gentile convert that happened in Caesarea, and of course, some of the missionary journeys, as they loop back, they would pass through uh, Caesarea also. And now this time in Paul's journey towards Rome, we can see he spends these couple of years in Caesarea. And when you go there to the site, you can see this is a, a hippodrome, like where a chariot races and things would take place. And this is an amphitheater. And this is what would have been Herod's palace built out into the sea. And uh, it's an incredible place to, to visit. So that's the uh, hippodrome. Uh, this is where the palace extends out to the sea. This, by the way, is a, is a copy of the Pilatus stone that they discovered on Pilate. And the, uh, the amphitheater is over here. And it's believed that when it speaks of Paul standing before Agrippa at the judgment seat, it's very possible it would have been in this open amphitheater as the tribunal uh, for, this, for this case. So when you go there and you have those meditations on the Bible history, it's quite, it's quite powerful, quite potent. So, verse, uh, and that's what it, uh, a sketch of what it would have uh, looked like at the time. So verse uh, 7, when he had come, the Jews who had... Uh, come down from Jerusalem, stood about and laid many serious complaints or accusations against Paul. And notice the phrase, there it is again, which they could not prove. So they were, they were filled with this passion that Paul would be killed, that he would be ended. What can we do for that to happen? Let's lay an ambush. Let's, let's make false accusations. But they could not uh, prove their accusations. No witnesses, no support, no evidence, no case. Um, and it reminds us even of the case against our Lord, against Jesus. Uh, many times it was declared, Pilate, his own words, I find no fault in this man, I find no fault in this man. And Jesus went through his mock trials, and they struggled really to define the charges that were against him, but they just wanted to have him killed. We can see that echoed a little bit with, uh, with Paul. So Paul makes his defense, and this is in... Verse 8, and uh, he makes it with the clarity and the beauty and the power, really, of a clean conscience and a beautiful Christian testimony, knowing that he has done nothing wrong and stands before his accusers, but stands before God with a clear conscience. And he says in verse 8, while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. So again, he plainly states his innocence against their charges. He has not offended Caesar, uh, which was Nero at that time, neither the law or the temple. Now, Festus kind of finds himself in the This is like an echo of the last chapter, isn't it? Festus is kind of in the same place that Felix was. He's got this man on trial and he he doesn't know what to do with him. So they'd asked him for a favor before that Paul be sent to Jerusalem and he said no. But at this point, he 
he remembers that in verse 9 and says, but Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, because he was the new governor over Judea, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So it seems like he changes his mind. He would like to get some favor with the Jews. And he remembered they wanted Paul in Jerusalem. Obviously, he wouldn't have been privy to the fact that it was a ploy and there was an ambush to kill him. But, um, and uh, he notice he asks him, would you be willing? And remember, why? Because Paul was a Roman citizen. He had certain rights that this Roman governor had to ask Paul, would he be willing to do that? Uh, um, Paul was an unconvicted Roman citizen with rights, and the governor respected that. If a Roman citizen felt that they were in danger of coercion or the case of being manipulated or that they or capital punishment or they may, may be treated unfairly or something, they had the right to appeal to Caesar, if you like, the highest court in the land, that they would go right to Rome and appeal before the court of Caesar. So, um, and again, we've mentioned that at this time it was Nero, that notorious emperor um, of, a, of a line of ten major uh, emperors who had persecutions against the Christians. It was Nero, who was quite a young man, only about 30 when he died from suicide. Um, and it wasn't until the latter years of his reign that he began to persecute Christians. At this time, although he was the emperor, that persecution, uh, a state-legislated persecution of Christians, hadn't begun. So, in verse 10, So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or I have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. And here Paul implements his right. This was his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to the high court. And it kind of... Uh, took it out of the hands of the governor at this point. He, he really had to honor that. And this was, a, this was quite bold for him to say that, because notice he says, no one can deliver me to them. In other words, not even you, the governor. You cannot deliver me to them in Jerusalem, because now I've appealed to Caesar. So that was a serious thing when someone made that appeal. If they made that appeal and it wasn't honored and it got back to Caesar they would really suffer the consequences. So Paul, in a sense, plays, we could say, a trump card, yes. Commentaries question this because, of course, he ended up going to Rome and ultimately he is martyred and was that the right decision? But having gone through the book of Acts and seen the prophecies and the spirit testifying that he would bear witness of him in Rome, we see all of this as the intricate part of God's plan, that God was with Paul all through these mock trials, all through these addresses. Paul knew that Rome was the final destination. And in this moment, obviously, we would conclude it was by the unction of the Spirit of God that he played this card, and that would be the direction of his journey to Rome.
You can make of it what you will. And ultimately, he's going to go and see Nero. Um, He's not mentioned by name in the Bible, but historically we know the dates. We know when the governors changed time, so we know which Caesar it was who was uh, ruling. A ruthless man, again, began persecuting Christians towards the end of his reign uh, after the great fire of Rome in 64 AD. It's believed he, he was responsible directly for the death of Peter and Paul, uh, Paul being beheaded um, uh, around, I think it's, it's either 66 or 67 AD. So Paul would go to Rome uh, as he was promised and he would testify of Christ in Rome. And that's, of course, how the book of Acts ends. Um, so there's wonderful principles in this history, which as believers we enjoy feasting on, and that's that we recognize the providential hand of God in this. You could see it from one perspective of this, this aging, this, this weak, aging Jewish man in chains, standing before his accusers, being dragged before one, the Sanhedrin, and then the governor, and then next chapter will be before the king, And you could see it from a certain perspective, like the lion and the lamb and the weakness, but we see it from a different perspective, that God is with this man, that God is orchestrating the situation, that God has already promised Paul that you're going to make it to Rome. So it's wonderful to see that God can fulfill his plan, even when it involves the choices and rash decisions of unregenerate, Kings and governors. God weaves it all together so beautifully. So, in verse 12, Then Festus, when he conferred with the council, answered and says, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Now, this is a fascinating uh, uh, interjection, preparing us for the next chapter and um, they want to pay their respects to the new governor. Again, this is the Herodian dynasty went from Herod the Great, who was the Herod who killed the babies when the, when the Lord in Bethlehem. Um, and it goes to, this is the last uh, Herod Agrippa in the Herodian dynasty. And of course, they were kings who were appointed as vassals, if you like, kind of puppet kings, although Roman authorities during the Roman Empire over Judah at this time. So here, King Agrippa wants to make an acquaintance with the new governor, so they pay him a visit in Caesarea. Let's just have another quick look at that uh, uh, family tree of the, of the Herods, and it's quite an interesting one, because here we are. This is Herod Agrippa. You remember uh, his sister, Drusilla, was married to... Uh, to oh, what, let me think. Was that... So he was married to uh, Felix. Remember, Felix, his wife, was Herod Agrippa's sister. So there's some kind of connection, overlap with the family and the relationships there. But Herod Agrippa's other sister is effectively his wife, or they were together, they were a couple. Um, his father is, is Herod Agrippa I, and his father is Aristobulus, who is the son of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great also had another son, Herod Antipas, who was the Herod who um, uh, executed James and and, uh, 
um, etc. So that's quite a family tree, isn't it? It's not the most savory family line that you might want to consider. And this is Herod Agrippa II. We consider his father, his great uncle, his his uh, his great grandfather was Herod the Great. So this is Herod, the Herodian king. He comes to see the governor in Caesarea, and um, and they're just going to meet. And of course, what what comes up on the menu of discussion? But this awkward prisoner, uh, Paul the Apostle. So, there he is, uh, Agrippa II. So in verse uh, 14, And when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. Now remember, Herod Agrippa is what? He's a Jew. He's of the Jewish Herodian line. He's a Jewish king acquainted with the ways of the Jews and the faith of the Jews and the history of the Jews. It's very likely and probable that he would have been acquainted with even who Saul of Tarsus was and the stories of what he'd become. We don't know for sure, but he was acquainted with the ways of the Jews. So this is an opportunity for the Roman governor to say, okay, listen, you're a Jewish king. Maybe you have some insight on what I should do. I have this Jewish prisoner Who's, who's brought to me by the Jews in Jerusalem who want him dead. Now he's appealed to Caesar. I don't even know what the charges are. I don't even know how to send this letter to Caesar. Maybe you can help me out. Here's a pen. What should I write? What should I say? So this is how the discussion goes. Let's, let's have a look there. So in verse 14, he says, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix. Thanks very much, Felix, for, for that, leaving that for me to deal with. And so he tells him of this man and, and what's happening, and he tells it to Agrippa and Bernice, both Jews, again. So verse 15, tells him about the prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. So he rehearses what happened. I was here for three days as the new governor. I went to Jerusalem. The first thing that was thrown at me by the high priest and all the Sanhedrin was this, this thing about Paul, who was apparently locked up back in Caesarea. So this is what I came to. And, of course, they wanted him to be condemned. That was very, very clear. Verse 16. And to them I answered, it is not the customs of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face. So in other words, there's some uh, allusion there to there being a fair trial, that this man would stand and he would face his accusers and we would address the accusations at the judgment seat accordingly. And he has the opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. You could have someone represent you, but you could also defend yourself, answer for yourself. Therefore, when they had come together, without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. And when the accusers stood up, so of course they actually they did come from Jerusalem, they did come to Caesarea, he did come before the, the judgment seat, And when the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I had supposed. 
In other words, I was thinking, okay, they're bringing this to the Roman authorities. He must be guilty of some rebellion or, or, or not complying with the, the, the laws of Rome or civil disobedience. Or All of a sudden, he, I began to realize it was related to their religion. It was about their faith. It was about the claims of some man called Jesus who died, who they claim is now alive. So, that's, uh, that's verse 19. But they had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, and listen to this phrase, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And of course, this was always at the very heart of Paul's message and, and even his defense. It was, it was the gospel, essentially the death, the burial, and the resurrection of, of Christ. So Paul affirming him to be alive. Um, verse 20. And because I was uncertain of such questions... He suddenly finds himself out of his depth, not knowing how to address this. I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning at these matters. So he's telling the Jewish king, listen, I was at a loss at how to deal with this. I thought maybe I can just bounce this back to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem and I could somehow be involved, but um, uh, that wasn't to happen. At this point, we could say, well, wouldn't it be simple It seems that the accusations are unfounded. There's no witnesses, no evidence, no charges. Shouldn't this just be thrown out? And actually, that's the conclusion that Agrippa's going to come to. He's going to say, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, maybe he could have been released. But that's not how it was to to unfold. Verse 21, But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, Um, I commanded him to be kept until I could send him to Caesar. So, this interests the Jewish king. He's listening. Oh, you've got a Jewish prisoner. Okay, oh, he's got some, oh, the Sanhedrin are all in a fuss about it. They want him dead. What, he's claiming that a man died and he's like, this is arousing the interest of King Agrippa and we imagine Benice. So he says in verse 22, I would like to hear the man myself. He says, tomorrow you shall hear him. So the stage is set now for the king, Agrippa, to meet with Paul. Now, this reminds us, we could go back up the Herodian line a little bit, it reminds us of Herod Antipas, which was his great uncle, his grandfather's brother, also one of the sons of Herod the Great, who uh, about 30 years before had also desired of Pilate that he would see Christ. You can see a little bit of echo in the history here. The governor and the Herodian king, a connection of which they would never have uh, you know, common favorable ground otherwise, but they found it uh, with Christ. And here... Um, we see the same thing happening. I'll read it to you. It's in Luke 23, 7. And it says, As soon as he, Pilate, knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him, Jesus, to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him 
because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. And then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. So that was the scene about 30 years prior when Jesus uh, stood before uh, another Herod up the line. Now we're about 30 years down the line and Paul the aged is getting a little bit older, probably pushing into his 60s now, is now standing before Herod and and this other king. So verse 23, so the next day as promised, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, and that's not a person, great pomp. They came and they brought great pomp along with them. No, great pomp and ceremony as the royals. The royals are in town. And you can imagine all of the, or everything that went with this. This, was, this became an event, a royal event, an official event, where the governor uh, with, the, with the Herodian king and his entourage and, and mistress and sister rolled into one, the whole thing. And we can read the verse here. It says, And had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At Festus's command, Paul was brought in. So in our mind's eye, perhaps you can imagine the grand hall, the, the thrones that have been placed there. The king has come in and taken his place probably with, to some great entrance um, there would have been five commanders in Caesarea, like Lysias was in Jerusalem, oversaw a thousand Roman soldiers. There were five of them in Caesarea. All of them will be, will be present. All, anyone who was anybody would have been at this happening in Caesarea. And then in shuffles, this little Jew in chains to stand before them. It's quite something. And by sight, anyone there would have looked at the king and looked at the governor and been so impressed at the power and the authority and the whole, everything that went with that. But the Apostle Paul, oh, if they'd known who he was, they would have realized the honor was really to be in his presence. But they did not know that. So Paul comes in, and he's standing before the king, the governor, once again having to face his accusers. This isn't so much a trial, because the trial, if you like, legally has already been defaulted to Caesar. Agrippa now is just being brought in to give some counsel, some help to this struggling Roman governor on what he's going to say to Caesar when he sends this, this, uh, this Roman uh, this uh, Jewish man, to, to Rome. So, Festus opens up in verse 24. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews has petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. Again, just mentioning that that was right, that was the conclusion. They just wanted him to die, to be killed, to be sentenced, condemned. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. 
our last couple of verses here. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination is taking place, I may have something to write. At the moment, I have a blank piece of paper, and I'm just confused, and maybe this will help me out. So, he would value Agrippa's input as a Jew. He would certainly have insights that, that, that Festus wouldn't, wouldn't have. This man who was brought by Lysias, he was left by Felix, he's now left in my hands, and what shall I write, Agrippa, can you help me out? Because, in verse 27, it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Might seem a bit foolish to do that, out of place, not right to do that. I've got to send him to the high court of Caesar. There has to be a very clear, clear reason for that. Help me out, can you, Agrippa, with what to say? So here the chapter ends, and the stage is set with Paul standing in that, that grand judgment hall with the king and the governor and, and uh, the king's wife or sister present, all of the commanders of the city, all looking on to hear what Paul is going to say. And we've followed Paul's journey, and it's been a joy, hasn't it? Uh, right from chapter 9, his conversion. He, we think of his three years in Asia Minor being taught and equipped as the apostle of grace, the one who would interpret the cross, who would teach about body life, who would write all of these incredible principles of the church in the epistles on his missionary journeys, that he would face and suffer so much over those years. Incredible. In fact, I'll read you verses from 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul, being forced to boast for a moment on his history, says, I have been in prison more frequently been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger, I have known thirst, and I have often gone without food. I have been cold, and I have been naked, etc. And he goes on. And, and they, they, they are just some highlights that he plucks out of his history. We studied the journeys, and so much of that is omitted. Of course, Luke couldn't fit it all in. There would be so much more to include. But we followed Paul's journey to this point where now he's going to stand before King Agrippa, which, interestingly enough, was prophesied by the Lord back in Acts 9. When the Lord appears to that little disciple in Damascus called Ananias, and Ananias says, well, I've heard of Saul of Tarsus. He's the one that's persecuting the church. Are you sure you've got the right guy? And the Lord answers Ananias and says in 9.15, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles and before kings and before the children of Israel. And here he stands, 
in this courtroom before Jews, before Gentiles, before a king, just about to give this his longest address and final defense uh, of his own testimony. And of course, he beautifully uh, presents the gospel once again. So, Father, we thank you that we could look at this chapter together tonight, once again considering this incredible Bible history of the Apostle Paul, considering your wonderful plan about how you used him, how you uh, brought us the the letters and epistles through these journeys. And uh, we thank you for these words, these, this, these, these def- the defense of Paul, the proclamation of the gospel, all of the nuggets and treasures we get to uh, enjoy from these chapters and just uh, prepare our hearts for uh, the future classes and, and use these thoughts to bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.